Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is, su- is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle for Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, our topic is seaweed and the role seaweeds play in the ecology of our coastlines. More and more people are talking about seaweed as a food source and for various commercial uses. This raises all kinds of policy and economics questions, all of which are important. But today, our focus is specifically on seaweed ecology. We will look at the habitat that seaweed forms for other species in the intertidal zone and how other species, including humans, interact with the many species of seaweed on our coast. We'll also explore what seaweed can tell us about changes in the Gulf of Maine. So we have three people on our show today who can help us answer these questions. We'll start with an interview that I recorded two weeks ago with Jesse Mullen, an associate professor of marine biology at Maine Maritime Academy. Jesse will give us a great intro into the diversity of Maine seaweeds. And then we'll switch to our live guests. So later in the show, we'll have Amanda Clemmer, who's an assistant research professor of food web ecology at the University of Maine. And Amanda's actually already in the studio with us. So hi, Amanda. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Natalie. Um, And we'll also be joined later on the phone by Hannah Weber, who's a research and education projects manager at the Skudik Institute in Acadia National Park. So with the help of Amanda and Hannah, we'll dive into research that's happening right now on the coast about the role of seaweed in our complex nearshore marine ecosystems. But let's start first with an overview of the seaweed species that live on the Maine coast and learn a bit about their marine ecology with Jesse Mullen of Maine Maritime Academy. So my name is Jesse Mullen. I'm an associate professor of marine biology at the Maine Maritime Academy. Great. And so what do you do here at Maine Maritime Academy? Yeah, so I I teach in the School of Ocean Studies. um, And uh, every fall I teach a marine botany class. Every spring I teach a genetics class. And then depending on what needs to be taught on either spring or fall semesters, I teach general biology, um, research prep, and senior research courses. Great. And you have a particular passion for seaweed. I do. Um, tell me a little bit about how you got into seaweeds. Sure. So I, when I was 14, I took a two-week summer camp 
um, over on at Seal Harbor at Acadia Institute of Oceanography. And pretty much every other student there was attracted because they like sharks or whales or dolphins or sea turtles. And what enamored me was using a dichotomous key and keying out the seaweeds that were the local seaweeds that the instructors had on the shore that they brought in. And I loved it. I think part of what I liked about it was they were they were sort of the underdogs. They were so beautiful and no one else was paying attention to them. And and I think I just identified with that, that they were beautiful and they I had a lot to learn because I knew nothing about them. And where did you grow up? I grew up in New York, in the suburbs of New York City. And then and then since fourteen on just kept saying, I want I wanna study seaweeds, I wanna study seaweeds and so I kept doing it. That's great. <laughs> For a long time. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about seaweeds, but let's start by putting seaweeds in context of their habitat. Sure. So so seaweeds in terms of just thinking about a broad definition of what the seaweeds are, because I think sometimes there's um, there's differences between aquatic vegetation that might live in the marine environment versus seaweeds, in that seaweeds are large marine algae. And so they're not, they're not grasses, they're not plants. So they're very different that way. But seaweeds are um, macroscopic, so you can see them. And so they're different than, let's say, other marine algae that are microscopic, like phytoplankton. So cyanobacteria or diatoms or dinoflagellates, you need a microscope to really see those. But the seaweeds are, are large, and so they, they, um, they're, they're quite visible. Um, and they have patterns of distribution and abundance in the intertidal zone um, and they're also subtidal so if you were able to snorkel or scuba dive as you would go deeper off the intertidal zone you would still see a number of seaweeds uh, kind of deeper in the water and define the intertidal zone sure so the intertidal zone i love hannah actually has a great way of calling it the ribbon of mystery so it's, it's the um, geographic space that is accessible only between, you know, where the high tide is and where the low tide is. So as the tide goes out from the mark of high tide to the mark of where low tide is, that's the intertidal zone or the between the tides. And so depending on the tidal range of um, what is uh, exposed at low tide, Intertidal zones can be very uh, short, geographically speaking, you know, maybe just a, a meter, maybe two meters, or it can be really large. So um, <clears throat> the Bay of Fundy in, in New Brunswick is really known for its really large tidal range. And in the Gulf of Maine, we actually have a pretty large tidal range in, in lots of our intertidal zones. So um, it can be on the order of, you know, many, many meters wide that are, will be exposed at low tide. So there's lots of space for seaweeds to, to grow and inhabit that intertidal zone. And um, presumably species who live in the intertidal zone have to be able to withstand being wet or dry. Correct. I mean, intertidal organisms in general, be it seaweeds or invertebrates, are uh, champions of living in stressful environments. So by their their very nature, they have evolved to have high desiccation tolerance, so being being completely wet or being completely dry, high ranges in temperature. So for things that live throughout the entire year, they can survive Maine in the winter and then Maine in the summer. So having fluxes of, you know, many, many degrees Celsius um, throughout that tidal range 
ranges in um, the salinity. So, you know, there might be a, a little creek that runs through the intertidal zone and there might be a lot of fresh water that may be inputted or if it rains during low tide, those organisms will be inundated with lots of fresh water as opposed to a, a marine environment that they're used to. Um, differences in, in nutrients, how many nutrients might be available during certain types times of the year. So there's there's a tremendous range in terms of the stress that intertidal organisms experience. And it's all sort of truncated in a really, really short spatial scale. So I often tell my students to think about you know, how, how organisms um, think about maybe vegetation as you move up a mountain. And as you go up in altitude, the the conditions change in terms of temperature, exposure, um, and the vegetation starts to change as you're moving up a mountain. And, and you're, you, hopefully the mountain's not just a little mound, but you know maybe a kilometer up. And you can see those changes and then just think about shrinking it all down into a really short scale in terms of that real massive range in environmental conditions that are very truncated in the intertidal zone. Those That, that vegetation or that that range of organisms is, is just the same in terms of having lots of different exposure levels from the low tide to the high tide. So high tide is almost like, for some marine organisms, the tip of that mountain, that they're going to be really desiccated, you know, really, really hot or really, really cold and have to withstand those stresses. So much like on a mountain, you get to a zone where you're above the tree line. Um, in the intertidal zone, you'll have different species that zero in on different Areas. Correct. Yeah. So, so organisms have um, evolved to adapt to, to different um, optimal conditions within that intertidal zone. So we might think of it just being a meter, but at an organismal level, level, it might be you know the life can exist there for that particular species, and you know maybe ten centimeters away, it's inhospitable to them. Uh huh. Um, I feel like I've heard people talk about zonation mm-hmm. in the intertidal zone. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. So zonation is kind of that phenomenon of understanding the, the distribution and abundance of organisms in any kind of spatial area. And so, you know, historically, people went out and could see where, you know, where the mussels were versus, you know, where the clams were versus, you know, where the kelps were. And so that idea of patterns of zonation um, uh, you can you can see that there'll be you know uh, within the mid intertidal zone that is often inhabited by large brown seaweeds, so the rockweeds we call them. And uh, as you move lower in the intertidal zone to the subtidal zone, you'll often find a lot more uh, red seaweeds in those zones. Um, and higher up, you might find some more ephemeral green seaweeds in the in the high intertidal zone. And same thing for invertebrates, that you'll find these patterns of distribution and abundance. So it's typically that you, there's the high zone, the mid zone, and the low zone that people kind of like to make their categories and block them off. So the high zone will be um, more accessible uh, because it's higher up on the shore. And the low zone, the organisms that are often in that low intertidal zone, might not be exposed for very much time, depending on if it's a spring tide or a neap tide, um, and often are um, different in terms of the distribution and abundance of them compared to the high zone. Can you define a spring tide and a neap tide? Sure. So the spring tides are um, the the highest of the highs and the lowest of the low tides, and they surround new and full moons. And then uh, when it's not a new or full moon, those are towards the neap tides. So it's not as a high as a high tide or not low as a low tide. And what is the... 
What would you say from an ecology perspective? What's the role that seaweeds play sure. in so, an intertidal zone habitat? Yeah, seaweeds play many roles, and I think we're still learning different roles that seaweeds have, and I'll give you some examples of that. But one of the most conspicuous roles that seaweeds play is that they're habitat forming. So if you think about most of the intertidal zones within the Gulf of Maine, um, there are, of course, of course, intertidal zones that are in salt marshes, um, but on the rocky shore, it's just a rocky substrate. So it's pretty barren. Um, uh, if there were no seaweeds around. So as the seaweeds are able to recruit and, and grow and settle, they provide a, a structure for other organisms to live in. So they, they baffle the water so that they um, reduce the amount of uh, wave exposure and, and water motion that might occur um, and allow for other organisms to settle on them on their, the body of the seaweeds, or it's called the thallus, or surrounding them. Um, and so it, it provides this three-dimensional structure for other organisms. It is uh, The seaweeds are photosynthetic, so they're going to be able to convert light energy into chemical energy, and so they're going to photosynthesize and create food for other organisms that might be herbivores and want to eat them. And they also produce oxygen since they're photosynthetic, so that they're providing nutrients into the environment um, and providing um, a, a healthy ecosystem for organisms to, to live and interact within and among. Um, seaweeds also, um, uh, a lot of them slough off their, um, their, their outer epidermal cells um, so that they don't have a high epiphyte load. So epiphytes are things that live on them. And so oftentimes that sloughing can be, um, you know, extra material carbon and nitrogen that is available to organisms in the surrounding environment, too. Which, how many different species of seaweeds do we have here on the coast of Maine? Yeah, lots. And I would say, um, if I was hard-pressed, I would say, you know, between 100 and 200 that we know of. Oh. But the more we know about seaweeds in terms of um, how cryptic they can be, the utility of having molecular techniques and tools to sequence things is shedding light that there might be a lot more diversity for some species, like there's a, a red that um, is encrusting called Hildenbrandia, that you know we, we have maybe described it as one species, but molecularly speaking, there might be five species. Okay. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about the diversity of the seaweeds that we have here. Sure. So seaweeds, um, again, are, are a, a group, a, a really diverse group of marine macroalgae, um, and they fit into three different lineages. So we've got the green algae, we've got the red algae, and we've got the brown algae. And all seaweeds can fit into one of those lineages. Um, and so in terms of thinking about the diversity of them worldwide, there's a tremendous diversity of green algae. There's a tremendous amount of diversity of red algae as well, and they're often found in the more lower intertidal subtitle. And then there's a tremendous diversity of brown algae. So each one of them has thousands of different species worldwide. Um, uh, and again, in terms of thinking about the conspicuous green algae that we would find on the coast of Maine, uh, most people might know about sea lettuce or ulva. Um, Lactuca is one of them, but most sea lettuces are things that look kind of blady, um, more tuby. They're in the in the genus Olva, um, and and that's kind of a common green alga that people would see. 
Yeah. And they're brilliant, brilliant green. Yeah, they're like yeah. a grassy green, kind of yeah. that, that bright chlorophyll A, um, uh, which is, you know, it, it, that's, the, that's the photosynthetic pigment, and so that's what's, what's visible. And what gives brown algae and red algae their coloration are other accessory pigments. So as, as uh, photosynthetic organisms um, inhabit uh, space that's lower on the shore... As the water level rises at high tide occurs, the quality and the quantity of light changes dramatically. So as if you think about how light behaves in water, it attenuates. So wavelengths of light start to no longer be available at depth, at water depth. And so the brown algae and the red algae have accessory pigments that are able to harvest other wavelengths of light and collect that light energy. Um, So they, they also have chlorophyll A. Um, but they have other pigments that mask that chlorophyll A. So if you if you wanted to take a piece of kelp and dip it in boiling hot water, you could actually um, leach out those accessory pigments, and you would get the same bright green um, thallus because it's it has that chlorophyll A. It's just hidden. Okay. Okay. And then the reds. Yep. So when the reds have have a, a different uh, subset of um, accessory pigments that are different than the brown algal pigments, um, and it they uh, are able to harvest light energy at even deeper um, uh, distributions, lower on the shore. Uh-huh. And so they've got some really beautiful colors, and they can, depending on the um, light quality and light quantity. Some of them are, you know, brilliant crimson to deep purples and maroons. There's one um, red alga, um, chondrus crispus or Irish moss, and it has iridescence to it. So um, depending on the 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 water, um, uh, in, in how turbid it is, or how clear the clear, clear the day is, it'll almost have kind of like a a, a blue purple shimmer to it. Mm-hmm. And so that. A number of red algae um, are iridescent, and they're just phenomenal. How do seaweeds reproduce? Yeah, good question. Um, there's lots of different strategies, um, and so uh, the, you can't kind of say that they all okay. reproduce the same way. I spent many, many, many years <laughs> um, researching the reproductive ecology of one group of seaweeds, the, um, the fucoid algae in the genus Fucus. Um, and they're neat. Um, and even among that, just that genus, there is um, uh, differences in how how reproduction occurs. So, f- and fucus. What, how do we commonly refer? refer we call them rockweeds they're too. The rock yeah, weeds. So they're so the group of rockweeds are any kind of large, leathery, thick brown algae that grow in this mid intertidal zone. And there's basically two two genera. So there's Ascophyllum, and the only species in Ascophyllum is Ascophyllum nidosum. And its common name is egg rack or knotted rack, and that's the one that's commercially harvested. And then we have um, between four and five species um, in the genus Fucus. Fucus has you know a number of different species, and there's a number of different reproductive modes. So for the Fucus species that live on the high shore and the low shore, they are hermaphroditic. They have both male and female parts. And for Fucus vesiculosus on the in, mid-intertidal zone, and that's the one I spent a lot of time on, um, it has a reproductive ecology much like humans. So there are male individuals and female individuals, and you can you can tell when they're reproductive. They've got these swollen receptacles at the tips of the, the thallus. 
of each individual. And if you open it up and it's ripe and it's it's reproductively mature, the eggs are um, olive green and the sperm are bright orange. They kind of look like tang. In, and so that's inside 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 okay. those receptacles and if you if you're careful enough you can kind of tear open those receptacles and you can see it so the females release eggs and the males release sperm and they they have external fertilization so they release those sperm and eggs into the water column and the coolest thing about fucus in terms of its reproductive ecology is there's a hundred percent fertilization success so every single egg that's released gets fertilized that's amazing. I know, because it's it's a seaweed. <laughs> it has no brain. But what researchers at the University of Maine were able to figure out in the in the nineteen nineties was it links its reproduction to photosynthesis and photosynthetic metabolism. So the alga can sense when it's sunny and calm and will only release its eggs and sperm during sunny calm conditions. Wow. So we know a lot about fucus reproduction. Mm-hmm. Other types of seaweeds reproduce in different ways. Okay. So let's say for kelp, for a number of the kelp species, they have a different life history or reproductive ecology that's that's very different than fucus. And so the it has what, what is called an alternation of generations. So it has two phases that are found in the environment. One that's a diploid sporophyte phase, and that's the, the kelp phase that we see. Um, and then it also has another phase that's microscopic or the gametophytic stage. And so you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to find those in the field very readily. Okay. And so similarly, there's, there's eggs that are produced and sperm that are produced. And when they fertilize, actually the egg is retained on the female gametophyte and the, the, the baby, uh, that's the sporophyte grows up on top of the mother. Wow. Yeah. The, with the weight of your child. <laughs> And so let's talk a little bit about the human connection. Sure. Um, what's the, so people eat seaweed. Yes. What are the different ways that, that main seaweed is utilized by people? Sure. So I would say that there, uh, historically, um, uh, people who emigrated to the United States um, probably did eat seaweed. Um, but, but as they started to emigrate, they kind of left that historical um, uh, food um, knowledge um, to wherever land they came from. So there's a lot of Irish, um, Scottish, English um, history of eating seaweeds, and people who immigrated um, at some point um, forgot that or abandoned that because it was you know poor people food um, in some way, but highly nutritious. Um, and I'd say that you know. 40 years ago, there was a group of people in, in Maine that started to, to eat seaweeds a lot more. Um, and it's prepared in a variety of different ways. So oftentimes, if, if someone wants to go out and harvest their own seaweeds, um, they, could, they could eat them fresh. They could harvest them and eat them fresh. Um, but the more easily accessible, I think, would be purchasing uh, seaweeds that have been harvested. Um, that, uh, you know, people who go out and sustainably harvest seaweeds. Um, and then the, usually the, the most common form is you dry the seaweeds and then you purchase it as a, as a dried product and then you rehydrate them. Um, or you sprinkle that dried product in, in something and, and make something out of it. So, you know, there's uh, lots of seaweeds that pair wonderfully with cheeses and potatoes. Um, lots of seaweeds that um, can be... Uh, 
sugared um, and, and have a very sweet flavor. So there's there's a tremendous amount of things that you can do with eating seaweeds. And I'd say traditionally people have been nervous working with seaweeds because partly they haven't grown up having their parents or their grandparents uh, cook with seaweeds or prepare foods with seaweeds. So there's a little bit of trepidation or there really shouldn't be because it's a, it's a great um, source of nutrition um, and, and really neat flavors that, you know, for someone who wants to be adventuresome and wants to eat more healthy, the seaweeds are a great addition. And if um, any of our listeners wanted to harvest seaweeds, mm-hmm. um, what do they need to know? Are they allowed to? Yes. So any, um, you know, uh, the seaweeds are, if you're a main resident, I think legally you're allowed to have 50 pounds of fresh seaweeds that can be harvested per day per individual. So that's a whole lot. That is a whole lot. And I would say uh, I have never met an individual who wants to collect that much for personal consumption. Uh-huh. You might want to harvest um, kind of beach rack um, to put on your garden for compost, mm-hmm. but that would be different than harvesting for eating um, uh, in terms of trying to collect that seaweed and then prepare it and feed yourself with it. Um, what I would say is that you use the same guidelines that you would collect and forage for any marine organism. So if you wanted to forage for mussels, you wouldn't go to a highly polluted location and collect your mussels and eat them. Um, that seaweeds are living, they're accumulating nutrition from the water that they're living in. Um, and so uh, highly polluted areas, I would uh, advocate don't don't eat seaweeds in, in polluted areas. Um, you know, look look around and see how pristine the environment is. Um, and know something about how the seaweed grows. So I think there is definitely a sensitivity for wanting to eat and harvest things sustainably. And seaweeds grow in different ways. So, for example, for fucus, it grows from the tips up. So if you cut a little bit of the phallus or the body of that individual um, and you take just the tips of the fucus, it'll, it'll have a wound repair and then it'll keep growing. Um, and so... Uh, you can kind of keep going back and and, and f- kind of cultivating that little patch if you want if you really wanted fucus. Uh, same thing with leaving you know parts of the phallus or that that body of the individual for let's say a red alga. You know, cut a little bit of it. Don't take the whole thing, and it, it'll it will regenerate. For things like kelp, where it's growing, where its growth is, is not at the tips and not at the base, but right in the middle between kind of there's the holdfast that attaches it to the hard substrate and it has kind of like a long stipe and then it has has a blade off the stipe and the part where kelp grows is really in that region between the stipe and the blade so if an individual wanted to go out and harvest a kelp don't cut it at the stipe because if you cut it at the stipe you've just rendered it dead (laughs) and so that knowledge in terms of how 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 each individual seaweed species grows is very important in terms of thinking about harvesting it sustainably. There are no seaweeds in Maine that are toxic. Uh, There are some that might be more palatable than others. Um, uh, There are none that are harmful. Um, But they host a whole consortium of other organisms. So in terms of thinking about bacteria and bacterial load, there potentially could be um, bacteria that could be noxious or toxic in some way 
that could accumulate on the, the thallus or the body of a, a seaweed. Um, and if not cleaned, um, could potentially make some, someone ill. Mm-hmm. But the same idea in terms of trying to like, you know, wash your, wash your, your land vegetables before you, you work with them. Wash your sea vegetables before you work with them too. What's, tell us a little bit about the seaweed-related research that sure. you've been involved in. Yeah, so I do um, mostly work revolving around rockweeds, so work on fucus and on ascophyllum, uh, looking at reproductive phenology. So I'm part of the Main Signs of the Seasons program that uses uh, ascophyllum as an indicator species, uh, looking at changes in the timing of its reproduction related to sea surface temperature. So that's one thing. And if there are listeners who want to get involved, I would highly encourage them looking at main signs of the seasons. And uh, we're always looking for coastal observers to kind of adopt a a patch of uh, intertidal zone and uh, monitor the ascophyllum and when it's reproductive and the state of reproduction. So what would a volunteer do? The volunteer would go out um, and, uh, uh, you know, across a, a small bit of space or transect, kind of look at, at 10 individual ascophyllums um, and identify if it has any reproductive um, material, so those receptacles. For ascophyllum, it's along the, the lateral part of the thallus. It's not at the tips. Um, and then see what those receptacles look like. Are they kind of flat or are they swollen? Um, what, what is the color of them? Once reproduction ceases, those receptacles um, detach. So, kind of, are they are they on the individual, or are they have they detached? So, it's um, lots of just observation of kind of looking at each each individual and seeing what its reproductive state is. And so, that information helps <clears throat> you and the research community track. Yeah. changes in the reproductive exactly cycle. so one of one of the other f- um, uh, focuses of my research is trying to understand how important reproductive material is to the environment so when when you have fucus or ascophyllum release its eggs and sperm and along with that is lots of mucilage I predict it's almost like releasing skittles and cotton candy into the intertidal there's a lot of carbon and nitrogen in those reproductive um, eggs and sperm and fertilized eggs and mucilage that could be super nutritious for other organisms in the intertidal. So any filter feeder or any kind of um, herbivore grazer might be relying on that material. If there shifts in reproduction, let's say a snail is banking on ascophyllum reproducing, you know, April and the winter uh, is continuously warming and ascophyllum shifts its reproduction to March, that snail might not have that food source when it has reliably had that food source over time. So this idea of in terms of phenological mismatches or this interaction of what, where that reproductive material is going and if there's changes in reproductive timing, how it might have a cascade for other intertidal organisms. And that change could be driven by the rising temperatures of the water in the Gulf of Maine? Yeah, so for ascophyllum specifically, um, the variable that's um, most likely um, in training some aspect of its reproduction is sea surface temperature. So as the Gulf of Maine warms, one might predict that there might be 
were, <clears throat> if you're just tuning in, you were listening to Jesse Mullen, who got cut a little bit short there. Not sure what happened there, but that was Jesse Mullen from Maine Maritime Academy, where she's a professor of marine biology, um, giving us an overview of seaweed ecology on the coast of Maine. Um, so for the second, oh, and if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. This is Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle, and we're talking about seaweeds today, and especially the um, ecological side of seaweeds. Um, if you just heard Jesse Mullen's interview from Maine Maritime Academy, <clears throat> that's actually half of a full interview that was about a how, an hour long. If you want to hear the whole thing, you're welcome to check out the Sea Grant website at seagrant.umaine.edu slash coastal conversations, where we've posted the full interview with Jesse Mullen. And in the full interview, she also talks a little bit more about the seaweed industry, um, her favorite guides to seaweeds and seaweed cooking. And um, uh, she makes some recommendations about what to do with seaweed from a culinary perspective. So check that out if you're interested in more. Um, we're going to switch now to, uh, well, we're going to stay in the realm of the marine ecology of seaweed and talk a little bit more about some of the research that's happening on the coast of Maine related to seaweed. Um, and I'm excited to have a couple guests with us for the second half of our show. Um, in the studio with me here today, I have Amanda Clemmer, who is an assistant research professor of food web ecology at the University of Maine. Hi, Amanda. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for coming. Of course. Thanks for having me. And on the line, we have um, Hannah Weber, who is Research and Education Projects Manager at Scudic Institute. Hi, Hannah. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you both. Um, so we just spent um, some time listening to Jesse's overview of seaweed ecology um, and learned all kinds of things. Um, and so before we jump into res- sort of thoughts and additions that you two might have of um, about Jesse's work and her, her explanations, um, maybe we could have you tell... Tell our listeners a little bit about the work that you do. So let's start with Amanda. What do you do at the University of Maine? What is a a professor of food web ecology? Well, I study food webs, which are basically the whole suite of organisms that will live within a particular ecosystem or habitat. And that starts from producers at the very bottom. So like the seaweeds that we've been talking about so far today, all the way up to the predators at the very top with a whole bunch of different organisms in the middle that um, make up all these connections that create a big web of organisms that we refer to as food webs. And traditionally, I've been studying these food webs that cross different ecosystem boundaries. So a very clear boundary that a lot of people think of are differences between land and water ecosystems. So some land and water ecosystem boundaries might be forests into freshwater ecosystems, so a stream running through a forest. There's a lot of organisms that move between those two different ecosystems, even though they seem quite different. And studying the connections between those organisms is what I've been focusing on. Now I'm working within the intertidal zone, And that, again, is a transition between a terrestrial and aquatic ecosystem. So that's between the land terrestrial ecosystem and the marine ecosystem. And Jesse, who, for those who are listening, beautifully described how it is this transition zone that creates a lot of different 
zones and habitats within it that from the organisms that can are more land focused and can deal with a lot of drought tolerance to those that are more marine focused and are more aquatic based organisms. Great. So all kinds of food webs that Jesse sort of introduced us to and we'll learn more about in a minute here. Um, Hannah, tell us a little bit about your work at Scudic Institute and what, what the Scudic Institute is. Sure. So the Scudic Institute is a nonprofit partner to Acadia National Park. We, um, Scudic, runs the... Hannah, could you speak up a little bit louder? Oh, sure. Um, Scudic Institute is the nonprofit partner to Acadia National Park, and we run the Acadia's Research Learning Center, and we're located in Winter Harbor, so come out and visit us. Um, sure, and my work there it really focuses on connecting people who work in the intertidal with each other um, to make sure that everybody's talking about this incredible resource that we all have and how to manage, monitor, research, um, use it as an education platform uh, sensibly so that everyone can work in the intertidal um, you know, in a symphony with everybody else. Uh, we also work very hard to connect people to the ocean through the intertidal and through experiences using the intertidal for education and for research. Um, and my work with, with Jesse and with Amanda focuses on how seaweed shapes the way the intertidal works in down east Maine. Great. And Hannah, um, in, in Jesse's interview that we heard in the first half of the show, um, she made a reference to something that she said that you say, which is uh, that she said you like to refer to the intertidal zone as the ribbon of mystery. I love that line. Tell us more about that. Sure. And I certainly did not coin that phrase. Um, the first time I heard it, actually, it was Toby Stevenson, who is the um, boat captain for College of the Atlantic. Uh, it was the first time I had heard that expression. And, you know, the way it was phrased to me, and I love this expression too, is that the inner tidal, you don't find the inner tidal on nautical charts. You know, the nautical charts stop at low tide. And you don't find the inner tidal on land maps. Land maps, really, it stops at high tide. And so what happens in the inner tidal really just continues to amaze and mystify people because it's it's not found anywhere. It is really sort of this this space in between. So although it is also a connector between the ocean and the land, for a lot of people it's also just really a ribbon of mystery. What happens there is sort of out of bounds of land and out of bounds of the ocean. And there's there's so much more to the inner tidal zone than just sort of mucky seaweed at low tide. So paint a picture of the intertidal zone around um, the Scudic Peninsula of Acadia National Park. Sure. So um, I focus a lot on the rocky intertidal. So that's sort of my my bent. But so I'm going to just step back and talk about sort of the um, the soft sediment intertidal really quickly. Otherwise, I'm going to forget to talk about it. Um so these might, you know, people might consider them to be mudflats where you might go worming or clamming, where you might find a lot of shorebirds who are down there picking up their dinner or what have you 
And the mudflats are an extraordinary place to do a, a lot of really cool investigations. Um, so I don't want to ignore them. And for the most part, when you think of, of Acadia or the intertidal in Acadia, you might think of just huge crashing waves on granite rock, which is beautiful and extraordinary. And what happens with these huge crashing waves is that you get amazing organisms that can handle being smashed by waves all the time or being exposed to, you know, okay, maybe not yesterday when it was super warm, but typically in the winter being exposed at low tide to freezing cold temperatures or if the tide went out in the summer being sort of exposed to, you know, the broiling sun. And so you have these this extraordinary assemblage of animals and algae that can withstand this and can withstand maybe being exposed to these extremes for a lot of the day or if they're lower in the intertidal, as Jesse was talking about, being exposed for not so much time in the day. So you get an incredible mosaic of algae and animals that can handle extraordinary extremes. And... To me, that's actually what makes the intertidal an incredible place to do, to play or to do research. Yeah, a complex environment to do research. So let's jump into the research. Um, Amanda, you are looking at food webs. Give, give us an overview of the research project that, that you're plunged into at the moment. Yeah, so I'm working with a team of great researchers, including Jesse, who was speaking earlier, Hannah on the phone right now. We're also working with Brian Olson from the University of Maine and Aaron Strong from the University of Maine. Brian is a bird researcher and Aaron is a sociologist that works in the School of Marine Sciences. Um, and our research is really focused on looking at how the rockweed within the intertidal zone is creating all of these connections between invertebrates that live in the intertidal zone, so amphipods, mussels, Clams. Can you define an amphipod? Um, it's a little crustacean. They look a lot. They're related. A lot of people, um, if you have lifted up rocks or old rotting logs in your backyard, and there's those little crawly-looking shrimp bugs that a lot of people call potato bugs or pill bugs, they're kind of like that, only they live in the intertidal zone and they're aquatic. Um and so we're looking at how all of those invertebrates are going to be using the rockweed either as food or as a habitat structure, and then how those invertebrates will provide food for larger organisms such as birds. And so all of these connections by eating things that are lower than the, them um, are going to create this complex web. And Jesse referred to... Um a really interesting phenomenon. She called it phenological mismatches. And I would love to have you both um, explore that a little bit more and explain what that means. And Hannah, I think that you've been working on looking at some of these phenological mismatches. Um, can you tell, can you define what that means and how it correlates to the work you've been doing? Sure. Um, right. So um, Jesse had mentioned the Signs of the Seasons um, project or program through 
um, extension and Sea Grant, and this is really focusing on what happens with organisms when during the year. All organisms sort of have these different cues when they do different things. So Jesse mentioned about sort of rockweed um, expelling its gametes at a certain time of the year, and that's what we focused on with the signs of the seasons, you know, rockweed project, and then. What happens if the cues for these particular life events happen at a certain time, but suddenly they start shifting because of changes in temperature or because of changes in, you know, precipitation? Mostly it's temperature, but precipitation plays a little bit of a role. Um, and what happens if you're an organism that's relying on something happening at a certain time of the year and suddenly it's not happening at the same time of the year and you become a little bit mismatched from your resource or a lot mismatched from your resource. So this isn't just an intertidal or an ocean question. Obviously this happens a lot in terrestrial situations. And one of the main projects that we're working on, I'm going to step outside of the intertidal for a second with this one, but one of the main projects we're working on at Scudic Institute actually focuses on phenological mismatch. So this this potential uh, mismatch between an organism and its resource, um, we're focused on fall migrating birds and what's around for them for eating as they're trying to migrate south. So in terms of what's around for berries and what's around for insects. Um, and that's a, a major focus of ours, particularly in the fall migration. I'm seeing Amanda nod. Amanda, what, what what's triggering for you related to this phenological mismatch? I mean, exactly what Hannah was describing that they're looking at in the terrestrial environment could definitely also be happening within the intertidal zone. So as these temperatures shift and some invertebrates can live within their usual range in particular temperatures. So if it's getting warmer earlier, then the invertebrates might reproduce and be at high abundances earlier than they normally would during um, other parts of the year. And we have a lot of migrating birds that come and use the intertidal zone as well. And if those intertidal birds are showing up and those invertebrates aren't there because their abundances peaked earlier in the season, then, you know, they're flying great distances, you know, sometimes halfway across the world and they stop in Maine to try to get food. And if that food's not there, then they're going to have a really hard time traveling to where they need to get. So like purple sandpipers that we might see in the winter might arrive and not find, I'm not sure what purple sandpipers eat, but some sort of small invertebrates, Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess. And they're not finding their, they might not find their food. Potentially. Definitely. Um, And now that you're mentioning purple sandpipers, you know, we're actually we have some researchers out on boats today as we speak trying to catch purple sandpipers to figure out what they're eating. And the way we're doing that is we're we're collecting the purple sandpipers and allowing them to poop onto little pieces of aluminum foil and so then we could take those fecal samples and send them off to a lab and analyze them for DNA to actually see what invertebrates they're eating while they're here in these habitats in Maine. Wow, interesting. And so the kinds of animals that are being eaten, so 
you mentioned the amphipods, copepods, clams, sea stars, mm-hmm. sort of everything that lives in that zone mm-hmm. is subject to being eaten by somebody else. Oh, definitely. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of a lot of the bird predators in this ecosystem. Some of them, you know, are very specialized in how and where they eat. And so the purple sandpipers are shorebirds. And so they're going to be eating a lot of those um, invertebrates and organisms that as the tide goes out, they get stranded and, you know, they aren't as mobile. And so they become a little bit more vulnerable and they really take advantage of that. And then there's some other birds that forage more when it's high tide. And those are things like common eiders that you might see around and, the small eider ducklings can eat the invertebrates um, that are living on the top of the seaweed near high tide, so at the very top of the water column, and they just peck at it like you would see a duck pecking in a pond for certain things um, and invertebrates. But then they can also dive, and so they feed throughout the whole water column from the very bottom to the very top when it's high tide. And what's the role of changes in temperature? We've talked on Coastal Conversations before. It tends to come up a lot on our show that (laughs) the Gulf of Maine is um, one of the fastest, uh, one of the bodies of water that is, whose temperature is rising the fastest on the planet. So what's the role of temperature? Hannah, I know you've been looking at temperature. Sure. So a lot of not just the intertidal organisms, but also other you know, non-intertidal or deeper organisms, a lot of life cues are temperature-related. So as the ocean warms and as the Gulf of Maine warms, um, you know, those cues happen at different times than they would, you know, have traditionally or historically. And that's just changing up a lot of when organisms do what it is that they're going to be doing. Uh, Obviously, this is of concern for things like when lobsters molt. And, um, you know, there are just a lot of different life history events that are related to temperature that are are shifting. And what are you observing in terms of temperature changes? Have you noticed, are, are you... Is the research at a stage where we're noticing patterns of change? So for us at Scudic and some of our other partners, we have actually not been monitoring temperature and looking for specific changes long enough to really make statements about what we're seeing with our research. So I don't want to go down that road. (laughs) Yep, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, So what are the other parameters um, in the intertidal zone that might affect when a species is going to be at a particular stage in its life cycle? Salinity, sunlight, what are some of the different things, Amanda? That um, Yeah, definitely. Salinity, sunlight, um, temperature obviously is a big one, which we were just talking about. Um, the wave action can play a really large role, and Hannah is going to be looking more into this in, 
in the near future, so she might be able to comment more. But, um, you know, waves create a very large disturbance, and there's some organisms that are adapted to deal with very strong crashing waves and some organisms that aren't. And so if you change the magnitude of those waves in that intertidal zone, then that can either enhance some organisms or limit others. So that can also play a really large role as well. And uh, what's the what's the bigger picture on um, this is the moment to sort of wax philosophical and and apply the the importance of the science research to wh- why is this work important? Why is our understanding of food webs and changes in our intertidal zone? Why does it matter? That's a really great question. Um, you know, these intertidal zones, like Hannah and Jesse were saying, are the connection between our marine and land ecosystems. And Jesse talked a lot about how these seaweeds are being used by people right now in Maine. And, you know, there are a lot of uses for seaweed by humans, which is great because it's a very productive ecosystem that we should be able to to use for our benefit. Um, and so, you know, we're really trying to understand the connections between all these organisms to then be able to inform things like sustainable harvest of these seaweeds for whichever purpose. Um, and the more we understand how they're connected and and how changing some of those conditions, like we were talking about wave action, temperature, light, the more we understand how changing those and the structure of the algae and the seaweeds like rockweed affects invertebrates and affects birds, then the more we can all work together to try to conserve the whole food web. And uh, Hannah, I I heard you say earlier that um, at Scudic, you guys are are working hard to try to have the various different interested parties um, sort of figure out a way to cohabitate and, and utilize the intertidal zone together. Tell us a little bit about about sort of how that's going. Sure. So, um, you know, if we all go down to the intertidal this afternoon and we stare at it, we're all going to see something different and we're all going to think about it differently. And, you know, there's often times when, you know, I might see it as sort of a, a research or educational resource. Someone else is going to see it as a commercial resource, and someone else is going to see it as as an inspirational place for for art or for reflection. And the the thinking is is that when you um, have you know, Scudic Institute, as I said, is the nonprofit partner to the national park. And so when you think about a national park or any other sort of conserved space. How do you manage um, a resource that really considers all of the different ways that people use such a resource and and use it's not necessarily a consumption sort of thing, but you know use it for artist inspiration or use it for for um, research or education or what have you. And so with Acadia, we've been having, you know, I guess what's called stakeholder engagement or you know, meetings, getting a whole bunch of people in a room to really talk with each other about how do we see this resource and how can we manage it, not just for now, but for the future. And um, the process has been extraordinary, and it's been incredible to be able to sit in rooms with 
a lot of different people who really do view the inner title very differently and really say, how, how can we all work together to, to manage this resource? And it's incredible because where we've gotten to now is a question of what is a healthy inner title? What makes a healthy inner title in a shifting world you know, where there is you know, increased warming, increased you know, intensity of storms? increase lots of other things and how do we how do we say what's healthy and how do we manage for that health so that's where the conversation is now and it's been it's ongoing and it's it's a super exciting conversation to be involved with it uh there's there's so much interest in the state in the last it really seems like in the last five ten years the interest in seaweeds and species in the intertidal zone has really exploded. Um, so for our listeners out there who are thinking, hey, how come we didn't talk about sort of those dimensions, particularly the commercial interest in intertidal species and the seaweed farming and those pieces of the conversation, we're going to do a show on that um, at some point later in the spring or summer, because that's a whole different topic. But we really wanted to focus today on sort of laying the foundation of the ecology of seaweed in the intertidal zone and some of the research that's happening. Um, I just wanted to ask you guys if, if research or if listeners wanted to, wanted to learn more or they wanted to join a volunteer effort, um, where should we direct people? Uh, Hannah. Oh gosh. So, right. So you can get in touch with any of us to learn more specifically about any of the research that we're doing. Um, that would be fantastic, and I would be perfectly happy to talk to anybody more about the research we're doing, and I think Amanda and Jesse would be too. Um, if people want to get involved in other ways with other, let's say, citizen science endeavors, there's a lot in this state, um, whether it's the Signs of the Seasons Rockweed Project, whether it's um, you know taking pictures of king tides, you know, super high tides, whether it's tracking marine debris, getting involved with Maine Department of Marine Resources, um, phytoplankton monitoring, or any other uh, means to get involved. There are loads of different ways, and I'd be perfectly happy to talk with anybody about any of them. Great. Thank you so much, Hannah. Um, amazingly, we've come to the end of our coastal conversation today about Maine seaweeds and their role in a healthy marine ecosystem. Um, just a reminder that if you want to hear the whole interview with Jesse Mullen at Maine Maritime Academy from the beginning of our show, then search for Coastal Conversations on Maine Sea Grant's website, and we'll also post some of those volunteer opportunities up there. Um, thanks so much to our guests, uh, Jesse Mullen, Associate Professor of Marine Biology at Maine Maritime Academy, Amanda Clemmer, Assistant Research Professor of Food Web Ecology at the University of Maine, and Hannah Weber, Research and Education Projects Manager at Scudic Institute. Thanks to our listeners. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Next month, our show will be featuring stories from the annual Maine Fishermen's Forum. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks so much to Amy Brown for engineering our program. And stay tuned to On the Wing uh, with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast Maine boat building repair.